Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. A lot of Sundays in the Anglican Church uh, have nicknames, and this Sunday could certainly be nicknamed Temptation Sunday. We have the temptation in the Garden of Eden, um, the sort of summary of that in Romans 5, and then uh, the temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter 4. I uh, wish to preach on three things. The ordinary course of temptation, Christ's overcoming of temptation, and then lastly, to sort of step back from the whole thing and ask the question, why does God allow temptation at all? Temptation um, follows a fairly predictable course, and we see this when we hold up the account of Adam and Eve being tempted in the garden with Satan tempting Christ in the wilderness. It follows basically three steps. Um, the first is that the enemy presents something alluring, right? something that looks kind of good. For Adam and Eve, it was a fruit that, according to Genesis, looked good for food and was a delight to the eyes. The prospect of a loaf of bread to Jesus when he hadn't eaten for 40 days would certainly have been alluring. The, the chief way that the enemy begins temptation is something that sort of sounds good to one of our senses, right? One of our senses, something that's like, ooh, oh yeah. The second thing is then the enemy sows distrust in God and in his word. By suggesting to the mind, um, most commonly a half-truth, if not an outright lie, or a doubt, or most sneaky of all, maybe a truth misapplied. <coughs> That's what he does to Eve. He whispers um, the seed of doubt. Did God actually say? If you ever hear sort of that voice in conscience, um, know the source of that voice. It's the enemy. Right? When you know that you know better, when you know what God has put forward as what is right and what is wrong, and you hear that thing, but did he actually say that? The word actually there is a dead giveaway that it's the enemy's temptation. When Eve listened to that and sort of, uh, rather than fleeing or rebuking, sort of entertained the idea, the enemy just then went on to straight slander God by saying, by contradicting him. God had said, if you eat this, you will surely die. And Satan says, you will not surely die. Right? Just um, hesitation moves to bold contradiction. Contradiction. To Jesus, Satan questions his identity and his power. If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. And then, this was really sneaky, the devil took verses from Psalm 91. If you pray Psalm 91, it's part of the Compline prayers, right? He will not let your foot um, be, touch a stone. He'll give his angels charge commanding you. He takes a Bible verse and tries to trip Jesus up with it. Right? A truth. Psalm 91 is God's truth. But misapplied in the wrong setting, it becomes a snare. The final step of temptation, then, is the enemy offering some supposed benefits. Right? So something looks alluring. Despite what God has written in your hearts by his Holy Spirit, there's doubt cast on God and his word. And then there's sort of a false promise, a false sell. Satan says to Eve, you will be like God knowing good and evil. See how, what a twisted thing that is. It is the case that by eating the fruit, they received the knowledge of good and evil. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But did they become like God? Right? The very opposite, right? They fell into death when God himself is life. So Satan mixing lies and truth, but, but to make a false sell, 
Same thing with, with Christ. Satan says, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. The half-truth there is that the kingdoms of this world actually do belong to the prince of this world, right? In a way, so any part of the world that isn't worshipping Jesus Christ is worshipping the enemy. So Satan actually was pointed to something that was partially his, but would Christ have inherited it if he worshipped Satan? No. The irony, of course, is that Christ has actually inherited all the kingdoms of this world, but he did it not by worshipping Satan, but by obeying his father. Right? That's why he got the name better than every other name. So it's something alluring, distrust in his word, and then sort of a false sell to try and seal the deal. A false benefit that the devil cannot deliver. To the great misery of all humankind. I mean, think of the, the dead outnumbered the living right now, about 100 to 1. So there's 7 billion on the earth right now. There's about 700 billion humans who've lived uh, since God made man. Every one of us, um, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, giving into temptation, um, has been brought into a world full of death and been doomed to our own deaths because of that sin. But to the great joy of all humankind, when the Son of God, who had existed eternally, took on our flesh and our nature, he resisted the enemy's tricks. He conquered temptation and remained in perfect obedience to his God and our Father. He initiated a ministry of life and not death. And this is sort of the marvelous sort of compare and contrast that we heard uh, wonderfully read from Romans chapter 5, right? Through a man, Adam, came death. And through a man came life, right? It's this sort of, it's the, the first man failed us entirely. We all have suffered because of his disobedience. But now because of this man, Jesus Christ's obedience, we now have the chance for life. Life with God, life immortal. Let me read the words because a summary is not as good as the straight words. This is Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass, whose? Adam's, yeah. Um, led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness, Jesus's, leads to justification and life for all men. Jesus conquered temptation, which means that temptation is now conquerable by the power of Christ. Think about this for a second. Prior to Jesus' showdown with Satan in the desert, the devil had been the victor in every single contest with man. Everyone had fallen into temptation. We know that from God's word. All had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the way you sin is by giving into temptation. Right? So the enemy had thrown snares out before every human being from Adam, between Adam and Jesus, and every single one of them had lost. So think of the greatest heroes that the world celebrates, right? I mean, I'm a big fan of Plato, but he fell into temptation. <laughs> hey, you recognize Plato? Nice. Good on you, Charles. Um, you're teaching him well. You're teaching him well. Oh, you're thinking Pluto. You're right. That's true. It used to, you know, it used to be a planet. Did you say Plato? I said Plato. That's all right. That's all right. Um, where was I? <laughs> Plato. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not, not Plato or the Buddha or even Abraham and the great heroes of the Old Covenant. None of them could resist the enemy's devices. Not one of them. When the enemy pulled out all the stops, man fell every time. Until the enemy went up against Jesus, who was man, fully, but also God. And as the God-man, beat Satan for the first time in, in, 
in the Satan-human contest. The Son of God beat Satan in the flesh so that by the Spirit of Christ, by his Spirit, he could continue to beat Satan through us. Right? We are his body, the body of Christ. Christ conquered Satan, sort of it was the, the first sort of um, pushback of the enemy line in the wilderness, but now Christ himself is beating Satan through your life, through your discipleship of Jesus. Now, thanks only to Christ, we have the ability to win when tempted, and the enemy hates it. Do you know on the planet right now, there's a finite number of demons. Do you know who is tempted the most on the whole planet? Earnest Christians. Right? We're the only ones putting up a real fight. Because we're the only ones who have the conqueror living within us by his Holy Spirit. The people in the world actually don't experience temptation to anything like the same degree because they aren't resisting, right? Apart from Christ, in general, the world lives according to appetite. Just, oh, that sounds good, that'll feel good, doesn't harm anybody, I'll just go do that thing, right? Sinning against God without even resisting. This raises the question then, how do we win? How do we beat temptation? Um, in the same way, temptation has three steps. A beating temptation, I think, falls into three big steps. Um, and the nice thing to know about the first step is it has nothing to do with you. And you can do nothing for it. It's already been done. Each of you who's been baptized has Christ living within you. Which means, I, I don't watch a lot of the superhero movies, too many loud explosions. <laughs> um, but it's almost like having a superpower hidden within you. That you actually have the ability to beat temptation that a non-Christian doesn't have. They actually don't have it. And you do. And that was the free gift of God. The free gift of his spirit. The free gift of himself, which he's given us. So that's the first step is, um, you've already done it. You're a third of the way there to beating temptation. I recognize that it's Christ in you who is the strength for temptation. The second step is clinging to Christ in prayer. Clinging to him. The, the figure that comes to mind, and I know a number of you uh, study kind of the, the classics. Hey, look, two classical references in one sermon. How about this? Um, Odysseus, right? Lashes himself to the mast before the siren song comes on. Right? That, that should be us lashing ourselves with prayer to stay as close to Christ as we can. So that when that temptation is coming, it's like, nope, I'm tied to Christ by these prayers. Sing away, sirens. I'm calling out to Christ and he, he has got me tied to himself. Short prayers are the key here. Jesus, help me. Jesus, I'm yours. God, save me. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. That's why we say it all the time. Lord, have mercy. Each one is just tightening ourselves to Christ to get through the temptation. That brings us to step three. In clinging to Christ, uh, the other final step is to know the scriptures. Know them so well that they're at least half memorized so that you can recall God's truth in the heat of the moment. This is what Jesus does with each temptation. How does he begin? What's his first thing out of his mouth with each temptation? What does he say? We just heard it. It is written. He says, he actually, this is the Son of God himself appealing to the Bible as a weapon against the enemy. Right? If he does it, how much more should we? It is written. No, 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 Satan. It's written. Right? It's written. Scripture should be read and familiar, and then it can be the sword for the battle. So clinging to his word, clinging to him by the power of his indwelling presence, we actually can conquer temptation. That's part of the great news of the gospel, 
is that we've been forgiven the guilt of our sins, free gift, and we've been equipped to then no longer be shackled to sins and active sinning. Right? Also a free gift that allows us uh, to not have to live. Um, it says in the scriptures, uh, you're slave to whatever you obey. If you obey temptation, you're slave to that sin. All sin has this addictive quality. And who wants to be an addict? Right? Christ has given us the power to break that addiction. It's actually not right to say that we can conquer temptation. It's much more theologically precise to say Christ in us can conquer temptation. All glory to him. Um, pretty much everybody I know, including myself, when you try and keep a devout Lent, when you sort of knuckle down for 40 days, like, hey, I'm going to pray a bit more, I'm going to fast some, um, experience an increase in temptation. Surprise, surprise, right? We're trying to draw closer to God. Does the, the world, the flesh, or the devil like that? No. I, it's Carrie, I don't think Carrie's here. I've literally never gotten in a conflict with Carrie on a Sunday morning until this morning, <laughs> right? I was like, wow, man, like this is... Um, the fault is mine because I gave in to the temptation to sort of be irritable and, and quick to be frustrated. But it's unsurprising that the enemy might be throwing a few... Uh, the metaphor that comes to mind is they're doing construction in our neighborhood and there's roofing nails all over the road all the time and everyone's getting flat tires. <laughs> right? The enemy's throwing, throwing nails in the road. And we're trying, oh, 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 right? Because we're trying to drive along a path of more devotion. So it's right to... It's very fitting that the church placed this election of temptation on the first Sunday of Lent, because probably you're experiencing it too. Life is sort of harder and a bit more difficult when we don't have the comfort foods and the, and the sort of fleshly things we've been using to actually run away from the real struggle. So it's helpful to be conscious and aware that there is a tempter, that temptation is real, and the tempter, tempter prowls around like a roaring lion. That's the meat and potatoes. Um, I want to conclude with just sort of one final reflection. Stepping back and pondering, why does God allow temptations at all? Because theoretically, he doesn't have to. Um, I don't know what uh, Alabama remedies there are for keeping snakes out of your yard, um, but he could have done that in Eden, and there could have been no serpent. Why did he allow the serpent in there? Right? You ever thought about that? Why, did, why is there the serpent in the first place? And when Christ says to Satan on the third temptation, when he says, be gone, Satan leaves because he has to, because Jesus is the boss of the universe, right? Why didn't Jesus just say that right away? The moment he saw Satan, he said, be gone. He actually permitted himself to be tempted three times. We know from Matthew 18.10 that each one of us has a guardian angel. Did you know that? So if the moment you're conceived, you're assigned a guardian angel who follows you and watches you and is the main agent of God's operative power on your life. Right? God works through the power of his angels. Why doesn't he just give orders to the guardian angel, hey, fight back every attack of the enemy, every single one? I say every because it's important to recognize that we are already shielded from many temptations. I think if the Lord removed his protective hand and the enemy just had sort of full attack on us, we'd all be in like the depths of sin by before the end of the day. He actually is, our, through our guardian angel, shielding us from many, many temptations, and yet he permits some to come through. I actually think part of that's part of why one of the great temptations, one of the great illusions of this life is thinking that we're good people. It's because the Lord's hedged us in with his 
protective hands through his angels. And so we're not even being tempted that much, really. And we're, so we're kind of doing some good things. And we're like, oh, look at me. And it's like, no, this is just the Lord's mercy that you haven't, more hasn't been put in your way. But still, why does he permit any? I think the answer is that we, it's so that we have the chance to become more like his son. Right? Jesus, with his full will, was perfectly submissive and obedient to the Father. If Adam and Eve had rejected the fruit, they would have then become with their wills like the one in whose image they were made. Right? They would have been fulfilling their function, actually, to be like, more like God. So when we are faced with a temptation and we actually cling tighter to God and the battle is won, you've drawn closer to God. Your relationship has gone thicker. Why are soldiers who saw combat together brothers forever? Because they fought together, right? That's, it's the same thing in the spiritual life when we're united to God in temptation. There's a nearness there and an intimacy. We also become more united to his perfect will and by his grace become more like him. So I'm, not, I'm actually not a glass half full kind of guy. Um, I'm a glass half empty guy. But to take a glass half full view of temptation is to see that it's, it's actually every temptation, every single one, every little thing or big thing is a chance to be more fully sanctified. It's actually an opportunity. The enemy's hoping that it would be the opportunity for falling. It's actually an opportunity for drawing even closer to God, being more shaped into the image of of his son. And I think that's why God permits it. It's a bit speculative, you know, trying to put the scriptures together here. But I think that's why God permit, permits it, so that we can actually grow in the Christian life. So that we can be more nearly united to our Savior, who himself was tested and overcame. Amen.